This week on the Aurora Underground, programmer and renowned amateur Aurora forecaster Carl Gruber tells us a bit about his life and work, and Ian Musgrave tells us about a rare planetary alignment and the Perseid meteor shower. I'm your host, geophysicist and heliophysicist David Hunter. I'm the director of Hunter Geophysics and the administrator and Aurora forecaster for the Southern Hemisphere Aurora Group on Facebook. joined today by Carl Gruber, a uh, well-known Aurora forecaster in the various Aurora groups on Facebook. And uh, so welcome to the show, Carl. Thanks for having me, Dave. So uh, let, let's uh, start off with um, with the basics. Where did you uh, grow up? I've always been a Melbourne boy. Always in Melbourne. Yeah, always in the eastern suburbs. Um, still here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've never, never been anywhere else. So. Right, okay. And uh, so what did you do at, uh, at university? Uh, you might be surprised to know I actually did uh, Bachelor of Mechanical Engineering. Oh, really? Um, That's just a... quite it's amusing given that I'm now um, a software engineer yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, at, a, at a large manufacturing company. So, yeah, it's been a long road to get to here, but um, here I am. <laughs> what sort of work were you doing to begin with? Where, where were you working? Well, actually the same company where I am now. So um, right. basically just uh, moved through different roles at the place where I work and um, gradually shifted my focus from um, pure engineering through to uh, modeling and then just basically pure software. So, Right, okay. Uh, just just a transformation of, of job roles basically. Right. And did you find that you were learning programming uh, on the job as you went or, or was it yeah, a concerted well, effort to, to try and shift into this different career path? No, no. I changed to a role where it was necessary because we were doing some um, modeling and um, I found out that I enjoyed that and kind of pursued it and moved into um, the automation side of, of computing. So dealing with the, the uh, PLCs and things that control big heavy equipment and then uh, after that later um, moved into more pure IT. So dealing with a lot of legacy systems that, that the company uses. Could you just explain what a PLC actually is, please? <laughs> Programming, uh, programmable logic controller is a, a specialized computer that's basically just used to control equipment. It, it's purely uh, gets inputs and outputs directly from machines out on, on, the, on the plant and uh, decides uh, what to do. So takes inputs, decides what, what to do next, and then makes outputs to various pieces of equipment, you know, anything that can move. And so how, how long have you been doing the programming side of things? Uh, probably about six or seven years, I would say. Okay, so a fair, fair amount of time then. What, um, what, what languages are you, are you uh, fluent in? Uh, so I started off with C++ um, and sort of the C variants and um, then inherited a whole lot of VB programs, which I'm not too fond of. <laughs> and um, have now sort of moved into the .NET, uh, Microsoft.NET um, platform. So that's, that's again, C-based. Um, they're the main languages I use. A um, fair bit of web programming as well. 
Is that in terms of so it's like a creating uh, user interfaces for your staff um, that are, they're all web based? Is that, is that what you're looking at? Yes, that, yes, that's right. All right, okay. So, so there's a pretty much a big movement away from dedicated applications towards uh, web applications that you can basically use from any browser. So, um, it kind of eliminates the need for installation and and you know. Uh, libraries having to be installed on on a particular computer. I imagine that would el eliminate a lot of the um, compatibility issues as well, particularly if you're writing code in, well, say .NET, you, you won't be able to use that on, for instance, a Mac or a Linux machine. Yeah, but that's the idea, yeah. Right, okay. Well, that's a, an interesting line of work that you're doing there. And um, speaking of interesting lines of work, we're... I'm aware that you're you're a bit of a weather observer. Um, before we even get into the the aurora forecasting specifically, um, how did you get into the the weather side of the, the the observing work that you've been doing? Yeah, I was I was having a think about uh, how I got into it, but I can't really like I, I can't really think back to a certain point in time. Like I've just always been interested in the weather and and anything that happens up there and and kind of just natural phenomenon in general. So I'm still I love very interested in things like you know seismology and any sort of natural phenomenon like that and um, yeah just follow it all. <laughs> well, while we're up in that area of of, of um, well, up in the air, um, you have a, a keen hobby in in aviation and, and of course in rocketry that's um, well known for anyone that knows you. <laughs> What, uh, what what's your take on the on the well on both aviation and on um, the rocketry at the moment? Where do you think those industries are heading? Uh, oh, rocketry's going really well at the moment. I would say <laughs> I, I think it's had a bit of a revival as far as um, you know the public's concerned. I think it went through a bit of a phase where um, the public wasn't all that interested, but um, now that we've got SpaceX in the industry and doing amazing things, um, I think it's brought a bit of popularity back. Yes, well, certainly watching all those rockets come back to uh, to the launch site or to nearby or, or landing on a, on a barge out in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. And, uh, of course, all the SpaceX fans will be wanting to lynch me now because I just called it a barge. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a ship. Yeah, yeah, it's a ship. <laughs> Get it right. Um yeah, it's it's. I agree with you. It is. It does look like it's um, having a bit of a revival in terms of the, the public interest. Uh, and um, yeah, and I have to say that watching that the first um, landing from SpaceX was just an amazing experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, so I, I often every, every time when I when I get well, not down, but you know, in a bit of a rut, you know, we we all we all get to that point eventually sometimes. Um, you need something that for inspiration, and I just go to go to YouTube and fire up that that Orbcom two landing video, and yes, it's, it certainly helps for the old inspiration. Especially when you listen to the uh, the hosted version, and everybody the crowd is just going off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what what about aviation? Where do you think that's going at the moment? What what what's on your radar? Uh, oh, just just for a bit of background, like I've always had an interest in aviation as well, and I actually did some flying train. And um, got to the point where I'd done about 50, 60 hours or so and got my restricted pilot's license, which means I could go up by myself but not really go too far from the airport. Um, so 
I don't know, it's just a, a general interest that I've always had as well. When did you do that uh, training? Oh, that was probably it was almost 10 years ago now. Um, and it just got too expensive. I couldn't keep going with it, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I imagine it would be um, incredibly liberating to be able to fly your own aircraft. Oh, it, it's it's an amazing feeling being up there by yourself, I can tell you. Yeah, it, it's it's um, akin to you know going out for your first drive after you get your P-plates. Um, yes, yes. I'd say that, but even more so probably. Yeah. Um, it's, there's something amazing about being up there sort of on your own and looking down at all the traffic down below. Ah, you suckers. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty, so getting on to the, what, what's um, bleedingly obvious missing from this uh, this interview, the Aurora. How did you get involved in, in the Aurora community? Okay, so it wasn't that long ago that I even just discovered that you could uh, see the Aurora from Australia. Um, so I'd probably say not, it would have been about five or six years ago probably only. Um, and I stumbled across this little Yahoo group called Southern Aurora and I found some pictures in there taken from Victoria and I thought, whoa, this is amazing. I want to see this. Um, so I spent probably a year or so just sort of chasing up around that sort of thing. And then um, I got up, got myself onto Facebook for the first time and discovered this tiny little group, uh, about 200 members, called Aurora Australis Tasmania. And, uh, yeah, that's where it began. Probably a year later, that's when I joined that group and I think that's where, where we met. And it is, yes. Yeah. I think our first discussion was uh, when you were down at Flinders in your car and I messaged you to say, "Did you? Did you? Were you out tonight? Did you see it?" And you said, "I fell asleep." <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like something I'd do. Yeah, it's the joy of the aurora chaser. You either see it or you're asleep. <laughs> All those clouds. And uh, so you then over time developed um, <clears throat> the the ability to uh, perform forecasting yourself. Um, I, from what my um, admittedly at the time I was, I felt like a bit of an outsider. Um, I observed that the likes of, say, Frank Rosser was um, seemed to be teaching you a lot about about that. Um, was there anyone else there that that uh, was helping you along learning the, the heliophysics trade? No, not not really. Um, Frank was probably about it to start off with, and yourself. Um, and it was partly the lack of people who were knowledgeable about those things that got me interested in finding a bit more out about it. That sort of drove me towards finding the knowledge that I have now. Yeah. I just want to spell out that I, I don't have any background at all in uh, physics or heliophysics or astronomy or anything. It's all just purely a hobby of mine. At the end of the day, I, I learned pretty much everything that I know from, from you and, and from Frank Rosser. So, um, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're both equally qualified. But um, I, I've got to say I've met some amazing people. Well, when I say met... Um, communicated with a lot of amazing people who share the same interests and um, have a lot of knowledge and learn a lot of stuff from a lot of people. And, it, yeah, it's, it's a good community to be part of. And, and it's certainly um, it's grown a lot. I mean, as you say, it was Aurora, Aurora Australis Tasmania was only, what, 200 members when you joined, and I think I was number 350-something. What is it now? It's 36,000 36, or something? Something crazy like that, yeah. And there are, of course, almost a dozen spin-off groups now. So um, Yes. Yeah, it, it's certainly grown an awful lot in the last, well, I, I joined in 2012, 2011, something like that. So, yeah, I was, well, it was 2012 for me. 
Okay, well then it would have been 2012, late 2012 for me as well. Yeah. Um, so you, uh, I know that um, you've very well. You, you've had a very limited number of sightings. How many times have you actually seen the aurora with with your okay. own eyes or, or through a camera that, that you've controlled? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's four. Four. So I'm not the most dedicated chaser out there. Uh, that's definitely a fact. <laughs> I find it very hard to get myself motivated to get out at night, and um, especially with a, a young family, it's kind of hard to, to get out and spend a whole night out. So it's only a rare occasion where I get to sort of go out and chase. Um, so I'd say four occasions. Okay. Well, that's, that's a fair amount for, for four years. The, the first time I remember very clearly, um, it was just a glow um, down at Flinders and – I ran out onto the beach. I could see the white glow with my eyes, and I took a photo, and there was some green down the bottom. I jumped up and down and got all, um, you know, all excited, ran back, posted on Facebook, woohoo, I've seen it, and then set up my tripod to take some photos, and it kind of faded away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so that, that was my only chance to... I've had so far to capture green. Yep. <laughs> I've seen a few red ones. Um, I've seen some some rays with my eyes, right. sky, which is just good. That was exciting. Um, but by far and away, the most amazing sighting I've had uh, was June 23rd last year um, when it got to G4 conditions in the morning. Had a look at the numbers. And I've just gone, oh, my goodness. And I've posted <laughs> on Facebook, everybody, get out there in capital letters and ran outside. And in my backyard in eastern suburbs, suburban Melbourne, I could see red. <laughs> and I could despite see, the light pollution. <laughs> despite all the light pollution, I could see red and I could see bright rays. Wow. Um, they, I couldn't see the green colour. They were white, but it's just an amazing sight. That, that would have been a sight to see, especially here I, in New I never Melbourne. thought I never thought I would have seen that in Melbourne. No, no. Well, a G four storm in itself is uh, incredibly rare. Yeah, that's right. And yes, it's just amazing. And unfortunately, on that night, um, Tassie was pretty clouded out. I think so. Not many people down there got to see it. Yes, there's um, there's a, a, a extensive history of very strong aurora that. Um, for, for most of us have been clouded out for. I'd have to say in my experience, um, probably more times than not. Yeah. During strong storms, um, the the clouds have been uh, overcast. Um, very a lot of frustrating experiences. So um, that night that uh, you woke up, or that that morning, I should say, when you woke up for the G four storm, did you um, expect to see the aurora that that bright, or I mean, did you did you know that there was an aurora coming the night before? Or from memory, I think it was a CME, so I knew there was something on the way. Um, but I I'd gone to bed thinking, ah, oh, it's not coming. Um, and I woke up and I realised that it had arrived, and I looked at the the values and I've just gone, oh my goodness, I think it was. Uh, BZ of minus 30 or something. Oh, wow. Okay. A, a, a big storm, and it was um, 800 kilometers a second wind speed, uh, you know, amazing numbers. And so I knew it would be a big one. So that's why I ran outside, and straight away I could see pink in the sky. 
Well, it must be must have been incredibly bright for um for you to see it without having to wait for your for your eyes to adjust to the uh, the darkness. I um I unfortunately didn't see that one. It didn't last very long. No, no. It's probably half an hour of that, and then it disappeared. How did you learn all this stuff? Is this purely just um, knowledge that you've picked up along the way, just talking to to various experts, or yeah, a mixture of that and a mixture of just um, finding things out for myself on the net. Really, um, there's a lot of information out there. I mean, I know a lot of people straight away when they first find out about it uh, like to ask questions, but there's so much information out there if you go looking. Um, anybody could could learn this stuff. Do you have any tips or suggestions for for the next generation of forecasters? There's a lot of info out there, um, but you just got to bear in mind that um, our instrumentation is somewhat limited. Um, we have one, or well, now two, um, satellites at the uh, Lagrange one position, which is between the Earth and the Sun, um, to measure solar wind. And we used to have two, oh, we've got one um, imaging satellite that uh, orbits Earth. We used to have two stereo satellites that were orbiting on the other side of the sun. So we got three, three, uh, like a 3D picture of the sun. Unfortunately, one of those is um, disabled now. Um, but really, that's all we've got. Um, so... Oh, I forgot SOHO, which is the uh, coronagraph images, which we need for our um, for seeing CMEs when they come off the sun. Yeah. Uh, um, so you're pretty limited in the resources we've got. And once we've identified that there is a CME, we've really got to wait um, until it arrives before we can judge what effect it's going to have. So it makes it difficult. Yeah, um, it, it um, it, we do have with stereo A, we do have some um, a, a, a very limited uh, ability to forecast what's going to happen with coronal high, high speed streams. But um, as you fortunately, say, fortunately, very fortunately, yeah. the one that failed happened to be on the side of the sun that is less advantageous for that. So, <laughs> so if it had been stereo A that had failed, we wouldn't have that because. Stereo B would be on the wrong side of the sun. Sadly, it doesn't help us for CMEs, though. <laughs> Not so much, no. no. Um, when, when we had both of them, we used to be able to look at all three pictures and work out exactly which direction it was going. Yes, yeah, so I mentioned being able to actually see the CME coming out from the side of the sun from the Stereo A and Stereo B um, perspective. Mm. It would have, would have been very helpful. With, with, three, with three views, you could de- determine which way it was going. So, yes, unfortunately, we've lost that one. Um, yeah. and speaking of the spacecraft, we're actually very fortunate that uh, we got to see the launch of the new um, space weather satellite a year ago, or a bit more than a year ago. That's the uh, Discover spacecraft. That, that yeah. You're yeah, so we're fortunate that we uh, actually got to see that one take off. That was a Falcon 9 launch, wasn't it, that one? It was a Falcon 9 launch, and I think we were all pretty much live because it was during the day here. But I, I would say to anybody who's interested in, in learning more about um, space weather and space weather forecasting, go for it. There's so much information out there. Well, yes, there certainly are. There certainly is. And there's, there's plenty of uh, information available. 
um, for instance, in the Southern Hemisphere Aurora Group or on spaceweatherlive.com. There's uh, all sorts of, of guides that are available around the place. So. Yes. All righty. Well, thank you very much for your time, Carl. It's uh, good to talk to you again, and um, good luck with all the programming that you're doing at work. <laughs> Thanks. I'll be watching the sun as well, though. We're now joined on the Skype line by our intrepid astronomer, Ian Musgrave. Ian, thank you, first of all, for making an appearance on the, on the show. And uh, what's going on in the night sky this month? Well, firstly, thank you for the opportunity to come on and uh, have a chat. And what's going on is uh, the night sky is very busy at the moment. Uh, in fact, it's the busiest it's been for some time. Um, this month, we have all five planets, uh, all the five classical planets lined up in the evening sky, giving us quite a good sky show. Now, um, those of you who are up very early in the morning in February of this year would have uh, also seen all five planets lined up. Uh, unless you're uh, very good at getting up in the wee small hours, though, you'll have missed this. And this was the first time since 2005 we had all five planets lined up. So we're very lucky this year that we've got all five planets in the morning and in the evening. Um, and this way, we won't have all five planets in the evening again until 2018. But uh, if you are out looking at the western sky, and now it's very, uh, right now it's very good, um, Venus, uh, Jupiter and Mercury are now quite high above the uh, western horizon and can be seen um, well past civil twilight, that's half an hour after the sun sets, uh, into nautical twilight, that's an hour after the sun sets, um, uh, relatively easy, uh, easily. And... Um, what you can see is almost every night something different is happening. Now, if you go out to the western sky and you cast your eyes westwards, at the moment you'll see uh, Venus uh, very prominent in, in, the, in the western sky. It's really obvious. It's, it's the brightest thing uh, above the western horizon. Um, and, uh, and in fact, you can even see it within about 10 minutes of the sun setting. It's that bright. Uh, above Venus is Mercury. And then above Mercury, uh, uh, Mercury is a bit, a bit dimmer, but and can be quite uh, tricky to see in the early part of the uh, twilight. And then above that is Jupiter, which is uh, really easy to see. Uh, again, it's it's quite bright. Uh, and if you sweep your eyes uh, northward, uh, up and northward from that, uh, you'll come across uh, the very distinctive constellation of the, of uh, Scorpius, the Scorpion which looks like an upside-down question mark. And uh, at the moment, in, you've got the uh, Mars is in the head of the Scorpion. It's very close to a, a star called the Shuba, um, which um, also means claw. Uh, then if you cast your eye along, there's the bright red star Antares, whose name means, of course, rival to Mars, the Greek name for Mars being uh, Aries. This, of course, isn't a planet, it's a star, but uh, if you look down from Antares, you'll see um, a, a bright yellowish object, and that's Saturn. Now, as I said, there's a lot of action happening. If you watch every night, you'll see Venus climbing higher into the sky, Mercury climbing higher into the sky, and Jupiter coming lower in the sky. If you look up to um, uh, Mars and Saturn, Saturn's not doing very much. It's just sort of sitting there. But Mars is moving at quite a clip for um, quite some time. Mars was 
uh, in retrograde motion and then uh, it, it, it uh, stopped. It's only recently started up uh, apparently moving again. And it's heading towards Antares and Saturn. And over the, uh, the uh, uh, next uh, weeks, you'll be able to see it come closer and closer until on uh, Wednesday, the August the 24th, Mars will pass between Antares and Saturn. And this will look really, really nice. Um, and then as the time goes on, Mars uh, uh, continues moving uh, down the body of the Scorpion. Technically, it's in the constellation of Ophiuchus. Um, this is uh, the ignored constellation of the uh, zodiac that uh, is uh, the uh, Ophiuchus is uh, wrestling a snake um, uh, in classical mythology. Uh, and again, it'll form a triangle with Antares and Saturn, but the uh, the, the a triangle will elongate as Mars moves further down the body of uh, of uh, Scorpius. Um, so there's a lot going on there. Um, if we cast our eyes back down to the horizon, you'll see over the next week, uh, as I said, uh, Mercury, uh, Venus and Jupiter are all moving together. Uh, on the 17th, um, that's the, uh, the, the Wednesday coming, the Mercury will uh, come to uh, effectively a standstill and start moving back down towards the horizon. So Mercury on the 17th will be at its greatest distance from uh, the sun, and this will be uh, uh, the best opportunity you have to see the Mercury. Mercury in really dark skies, so it will be quite high and quite late into twilight. Uh, Mercury will be very, very prominent. Um, and at this time, uh, Mercury will be forming a bit of a triangle with, um, uh, with uh, Venus and Jupiter. Uh, uh, over the next few days, as Jupiter moves uh, further uh, down towards Venus, uh, it comes quite close to Mercury. It's about a hand span from Mercury. Now, uh, I, for those of you who are used to thinking in degrees, um, uh, uh, finding your way around the sky is fairly easy. But if you're not familiar with degrees, uh, this may be a, a helpful way to think about it. If you stick your arm out at full arm's length with your hand up as if you're making a stop sign, the width of your hand is approximately six degrees. And so if you use that as a so, uh, your stop sign, Mercury will be about a hand span from, uh, from Jupiter for the next few days, uh, from, the, from the 17th. And uh, while this is happening, Venus and Jupiter are getting closer and closer. And this uh, 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 culminates on the 28th when um, Venus and Jupiter are less than half a hand, less than half a finger width apart. Um, uh, that's spectacularly close. Um, of course, it's going to look nice uh, uh, a few days before and a few days after. Indeed, uh, if you're looking on the 27th and the 29th, uh, it'll still be spectacularly close, but they're really the closest on the 28th. Uh, so if you happen to have bad weather on the 28th, uh, which is almost inevitable, um, we just missed out because, of course, uh, the closest approach of Mars to Dushuba was last night, and it's still pretty good tonight. Of course, those two days it's been hammering down rain here, and I have seen nothing at all. Um, and after the 28th, uh, Venus and Jupiter pull apart as Jupiter continues to head for the horizon, and Venus continues uh, uh, to 
head uh, up into the twilight sky. And again, for a while, you'll see um, Mercury and Venus and Jupiter forming a triangle, but now instead of it being Venus, Mercury, Jupiter, it's now Jupiter, Mercury, Venus. And uh, that will continue on until uh, early um, September. And then by rough, roughly uh, the, the end of the first week of September, uh, Mercury will be no longer uh, visible. And uh, a little bit later, Jupiter will be lost in the twilight glow while uh, Venus uh, continues uh, up and uh, heads towards the bright star speaker. And so that's what's going to be happening over the next few weeks uh, with the planets. And again, this is going to look quite spectacular. Um, and, uh, and almost every night there'll be something different out there for you to have a look at. Well, thank you for that, Ian. Um, I've actually seen uh, most of those planets that you mentioned. I have, well, in fact, all of them, except for Mercury. Um, I, I have even seen uh, Pluto as a very, very faint dot in my telescope one night. Um, just by pure luck, I thought, well, let's have a look at that. And eventually I realized when I looked at the star charts that that's what I was looking at. Mercury, I've never seen, though. So this would be a, a, a good time to get out, wouldn't it? This is your perfect opportunity because um, uh, Mercury can be quite quite difficult to pick up. Uh, many times of the, month of the year when Mercury is visible in the, the evening, it's often quite low to the horizon. So you, it's, it's very hard to see against the twilight glow. This time, not only is uh, it high, and so you can see it well after the sky is getting reasonably dark, um, but it's it, by being bracketed by very obvious Venus and uh, very obvious Jupiter, and it's, it's the only bright object. You'll see Venus, next bright object is Mercury, next bright object is Jupiter. Very, very, very obvious. It does, does sound like it's going to be easy to spot. I actually, um, yeah. last week we were all out uh, looking at that uh, really strong aurora on the 3rd of August and uh, we uh, I, I inevitably got there um, about half an hour too late by the time I got there and it all started to die down um, but I was able to look up at the sky and sure enough I saw Mars and I saw uh, Scorpio and I saw Ophiuchus and uh, I saw uh, Mars and actually I did well, I was able to see ne Neptune was up, up in the sky there as well um, yeah, is yeah. that that's still up in the sky at the moment, or is that uh, moved beyond the horizon now? Neptune's uh, in Aquarius at the moment, and uh, will remain in Aquarius, and uh, will be re reasonably uh, uh, reasonably well placed for observation for quite some time. Whereas, uh, so you've got most of at the moment, you've got most of the classic planets in the sky. Uh, so it's 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 really quite uh, uh, quite good. If, if, if you're out, if you're out and about uh, with the right equipment, you can see uh, before uh, Mercury and, and Venus sets. You can see all uh, of the uh, 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 all of the classical planets, uh, as well as uh, Pluto. And you'll have by the time uh, Neptune uh, rises, uh, unfortunately, the three bright planets have all set, which is kind of sad because otherwise we could have had them all. And unfortunately. Uranus doesn't um, rise until quite late at the moment. But uh, one thing very few people uh, realise is it's, it's, it's possible to see Uranus with the unaided eye. Mind you, it's not very easy. You have to have dark skies. Um, you have to have uh, Uranus in a fairly uncrowded field, so it's relatively easy to pick up. 
it's actually uh, 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 bright enough to see with the unaided eye when it's in opposition. Mm. So at the moment, for example, it's a magnitude 5.8. Now, the theoretical uh, minimum for people is uh, magnitudes to see uh, under a dark sky is magnitude 6. Uh, I'll just remind people who are listening that the magnitude scale, um, while it has its own logic, can be a bit um, strange. The brightest objects are negative magnitudes. So, for example, Venus is minus 4, Jupiter is minus 2, Sirius is uh, minus 1, whereas the dimmest objects uh, have uh, magnitudes of um, 5 or 6. Um, if you go around uh, the Southern Cross, for example, the uh, brightest star in the Southern Cross is uh, magnitude uh, 1.3, and then it goes... Uh, one uh, 1.3 for, for uh, that's Alpha Crucis uh, or Acrux, then um, Beta Crucis is 1.3, uh, Gamma Crucis is uh, 1.7, uh, Delta is 2.7, and uh, Epsilon is uh, 3.6. So uh, to get a feel for it, if you're out looking at the Southern Cross, you can get a feel for magnitudes by seeing how the stars of the Southern Cross dim, going from the brightest at uh, 1.3 down to the dimmest at 3.6. But of course, at the dimmest magnitude you can see, uh, for people with normal eyes, there are people who've got some really good eyesight you can see down to magnitude 6.5, but for most normal people, magnitude 6 is the lowest you can go down to. So uh, Uranus is magnitude 5.8. So if you know where you're looking and you're out under dark skies and, the, and, uh, and, Uranus, and Uranus is relatively high in the sky, you can pick it up with the unaided eye. Yeah, but it's really easy to pick up with binoculars if you're also looking with binoculars. Well, binoculars are a particularly um, e easy way of, of seeing things. Um, it certainly beats the what, what I've been doing, which is getting out with the uh, robotic telescope and setting up the mount and... Uh, and itself takes an hour to set up, and then you um, inevitably get clouded out. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it loses a spontaneity. So, yes. I mean, I, I like going out and just looking at the skies with my unaided eyes. I also like my binoculars, um, and especially if you go out camping, it's a much easier to take a set of binoculars with you than mm. it is to cart around all the extra stuff. And for, for planets and things, the, the telescopes... Uh, for the bright planets, uh, telescopes are just as good out of the suburban skies as they are out under the, uh, the bush skies. But if you want to get some of the nebula and, uh, and galaxies and, and uh, faint, the faint fuzzies, if you're a faint fuzzy fan, then you, there's no, no better combination than a decent telescope and, a, uh, and, and a, a, a dark outback skies. And, but, of course, the, the clouds will always come <laughs> over. A couple of uh, well, about a month ago, we were out uh, in the Grampians, and it was you know brilliant, brilliant skies, absolutely beautiful. I had my little portable telescope out, and I was showing uh, my nephews um, uh, Mars, Saturn, and Jupiter, and the Moon, and uh, we we're having a wonderful time. And then I was going to go and hunt for uh, the uh, uh, comet CX uh, C uh, two thousand and thirteen X one because you know dark skies it was it was quite bright and of course soon as i got ready to start looking for the comet clouds came over it stayed cloud, cloudy for the rest of the week so that's astronomy to be an astronomer you must have great peace of mind 
uh, should mention the Perseid meteor shower. Um, now, uh, for those of uh, for the, you may have seen a lot on the me on the media at the moment about uh, how it's going to be this marvelous meteor shower, and there may be two hundred meteors per hour and, and things like that. Um, mm. Firstly, I'm going to point out the there's a number of different predictions using different models. Uh, as your listeners will know, meteor showers are caused by debris left over from uh, comets as they uh, 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 come close to the Earth, or in a couple of cases, for example, the Geminids, uh, dust that's uh, blasted off the uh, asteroid Phaeton. Um, and uh, the dust from the Perseids is from the comet Swift-Tuttle. It comes around about, about once every 300 years. Uh, now, if, it was only, if we only got dust every time the comet came around, you'd have a meteor shower once every 300, uh, 130 years. This, this just doesn't happen. But every time the comet comes around, it releases dust. And so um, every, every year we interact with dust clouds that may have been released centuries ago. And what's happened this year is one of the dust clouds has come close to Jupiter and its orbit has been altered and it's more likely to impact us. Now, exactly how many meteors you'll get out of this depends on the modelling. Uh, one group of uh, models comes up with uh, 150 to 160 meteors per hour as the zenith hourly rate. I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, the other model, uh, comes, another model comes up with about 200 meteors per hour at the peak at the zenith hourly rate. Um, now, zenith hourly rate, that sounds really great, doesn't it? A peak of 200, that, that's about a, a, a three meteors every minute. That sounds really cool. But zenith hourly rate is the rate that if you're out in a really dark sky, with a completely unobscured horizon, there's no trees or rocks or hills or buildings in the way, and the, the radiant, the point where the meteors appear come from the sky, is directly above your head in the zenith. Uh, almost nowhere in the world will uh, you see anything like that. So realistic figures, uh, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere and listening to this at the moment, if you're around uh, Oslo or um, Stockholm, uh, you're probably going to be seeing uh, roughly a meteor a minute. If you're in the United States, the peak, the peak occurs at such a time that favours uh, Europe rather than the United States, so you'll probably see uh, a meteor every uh, every other every other minute. Um, it, it, it could be quite good. In Australia, because uh, the radiant for the Perseids is in the constellation of Perseus, strangely enough, for most of Australia, the radiant's really below the horizon. And so you've got two effects. One is most of the meteors are going to be shooting down rather than up. And when they do shoot up above the horizon, they'll be you're spewing them through the horizon murk. So effectively, below the latitude of Brisbane, you might see a one or two meteors an hour. You're not going to see very much, but then you then you'll see one shooting up above the horizon. It could look quite nice. Once you go north of Brisbane, you're going to see rates of uh, on the order of uh, um, at Mackay. You're going to be looking at something like um, 13 uh, meteors per hour at the peak. And I should mention the peak is, uh, for Australians, the peak uh, occurs uh, before the radiant rises. But because of the, the geometry of the radiant, your best times uh, to be looking will be on the morning of the 13th. Uh, uh, 
between about 4 and 5.30 local time. Uh, that will give you the best rates. Um, the best rates are uh, in Darwin, where you get 28 meteors an hour. So that's about a meteor every two minutes. Um, in Cairns, you're seeing a meteor every three minutes. Further south, a meteor every four minutes. Uh, it can be a bit like watching paint dry. You won't be there. Oh, there's a meteor. Um, but again, also with, with uh, meteors, they're meteors, as I say quite often, they're like buses. You can wait for ages and a whole bunch turn up at once. So uh, you can't expect to walk out of your backyard and see meteors. You have to get a walk out in your backyard, find somewhere comfortable to sit, uh, rug up with something warm because it's going to be really cold, and wait patiently. And then you, just as you're about to go, nothing's going to happen, I'm going to go inside. You'll see this massive meteor streak across the horizon. You're going, yeah, I'm going to see another one. And, and that's when the clouds come. <laughs> and that's when the clouds come, yes. Uh, for listeners in the, um, uh, in the northern hemisphere, um, the peak occurs at um, on August the 12th, 13 hours UT to, uh, to about uh, 15.30 UT. So that's in universal time. So uh, obviously, America for in, in, in Europe, the the times are closer to universal time. In America, they're further away from universal time. But uh, in, in Europe and America, you probably see uh, see uh, really good um, uh, rates on the morning of the twelfth, morning of the thirteenth, and morning of the fourteenth. Australia, the twelfth and twelfth uh, and fourteenth, not so good. Uh, it's pretty much best around the the, third, the morning of the 13th. So even though in in, in Europe, the radiant rises uh, quite early, um, early on the moon's going to interfere, so you'll really only begin to see good meteor rates after midnight when the moon's set and the radiant starts getting high. Right, okay. So for us here in Australia, we're, we're primarily concerned with Saturday morning, the 13th of August, in the, uh, the early hours, so sort yep. of... What, 4, 4 a.m.? Is that when you said 4 a.m. onwards? Yeah, 4 a.m. If you want to be really enthusiastic and get up at, at uh, 3, 3.30, um, go ahead. But really, you won't be expecting to see very much until from about uh, 4, 4.30 uh, p- uh, uh, until 5, 5.30. Right, okay. Well, that's certainly um, giving me something to do on the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I, I've bought myself a... Um, a little uh, software-defined radio, which I was intending to use to um, see if I could pick up radio meteors because uh, you, know, you can pick up uh, meteors from quite a distance away and it doesn't really matter if it's cloudy or anything like that. And I was going to use it as a test bed for the Perseids. But it turns out uh, I need to get a beefier antenna to go with the, uh, the software-defined radio and I'll have to do a little bit more more run. Um, messing about before I can uh, start looking at radio meteors. So just uh, let's just go back a step, if you don't mind. A radio meteor is this some sort of process where um, the superheated plasma in front of the um, the the meteor coming in through the atmosphere is is that producing radio waves? Is that what we're talking about? Uh, no, uh, almost completely not. Oh, okay. But, uh, <laughs> what happens is is actually far more interesting. The uh, the superheated plasma that the meteor uh, produces that shoots through the ionosphere acts as a reflector. And what it does is it reflects um, radio waves from 
uh, radio stations that are over the horizon and makes mm. them uh, and makes them audible. Um, so you can get with really uh, uh, big videos, you can get little snatches of of, uh, of uh, radio happening. But more often, you just get pings as the as the radio waves get reflected off and come down to your uh, the radio. So what you've got to do is you've got to choose a um, uh, a radio station that's somewhere between 300 to 1,000 kilometres away from you, well over the horizon, tune your uh, radio, and, and preferably north, because, of course, the radio meteors are in the north. Uh, of course, 800 kilometres to the south of me is the uh, Southern Ocean, and there's not too many radio stations there. Mm. You choose a northern radio station um, uh, that... Uh, doesn't ha doesn't isn't in the same um, wavelength as the local radio stations, um, and is is between three hundred to thousand um, kilometres away. Uh, then, when the uh, meteors begin their burn, the ra radio waves bounce off, come down to your receiver, and you hear hear a ping, and you can count down meteors. Uh, of course, there's other rubbish as well. That um, uh, after a while, you get used to what's a meteor and and what's not. But like I said, um, the antenna I have is not really up to snuff, and I've got to work out a, a better way, uh, organise a better antenna in order to uh, to pick up uh, meteors with any uh, decent amount of uh, effort. You say that you can hear the radio. Is this uh, as in you'd actually hear, say, someone um, or the music playing on the other radio station, or are you just hearing some sort of signal? Or the the pings are fractions of a second long, so you won't hear a burst of music or anything like that. But uh, You'll, you'll, you'll hear um, pings or hisses or, um, or, or things like that. Um, uh, you can go, there's a number of, of websites which deal with uh, uh, observing meteors through radio and they, they have recordings of the meteors as they come through. So it's worthwhile having a listen and listen to the signals and see what they sound like. Oh, right, okay. That sounds fascinating. I've never, never heard of that sort of thing before. Yeah, you know, it's absolutely fascinating. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. I'm approving to be not very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you very much for that, Ian. It's an incredibly detailed analysis that you've given us for the for the next month. It, it gives us a good idea of what to look for, and uh, I look forward to hopefully talking to you in the next episode and finding out what's going on in the in the night sky for that month. It was a pleasure speaking to you, and I hope you have clear skies and uh, good viewing. And I look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you, and clear skies to you too, Ben. Thank you very much. Cheers. I hope you've enjoyed this show with my guests, Carl Gruber and Ian Musgrave. For those interested in learning more about Aurora Forecasting, I'm running a one-day workshop on Saturday the 26th of November here in Melbourne, Australia. Tickets are a mere $120, and you'll be taught absolutely everything you need to know to reliably forecast auroras for yourself. Please see www.auroraaustralis.space for further details. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Until next time, may your skies be free of airglow.